Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Short Term Show. Today, we have Scriven Hafes. He has a really interesting story because he's done a lot of different types of investing. He's working on keeping his W-2 job as long as possible, which is kind of the opposite of what a lot of you guys are working on. Uh, his goal is to keep his job as long as possible so that he can leverage that W-2 income into as many properties as possible. And we're going to talk a little bit about how he's landed on short-term rentals as a way to leverage scaling his portfolio much more quickly than with just a big portfolio of long-term. So, hey, Scriven, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I very much miss the Texas Hill Country, so I am jealous that you own stuff in that area. So, um yeah, can you uh, just give the audience a little bit of a rundown? Tell us about yourself, a little bit about your portfolio, and help us get to know you a little better. Sure. Um, so Scriven Hafes, I live in New Braunfels, Texas, in the middle of the hill country. And before I say anything else, I do want to say, just in case we get into like financing discussions and all that, just a disclaimer, I'm not a CPA. I am not an attorney. I have a marketing degree from a party school. So if there's anything I say that you think is cool, please check it with somebody much smarter than me. Um, but uh, I am 33 years old. I've worked in basically some form of industrial sales since I graduated in 2009. Um, I've always, I like to say that I'm lazy at heart. I've never had a job where I've had to go into the office uh, eight to five or anything like that, I wouldn't be able to function in that. So I've, I've always been kind of um, an outside sales role. I'm in my truck working from home, things like that. And uh, basically, I, I got into investing just after having a lot of road time, stumbling on podcasts, stumbling on books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and, and just talking with friends. And um, you know, I, I I bought my first duplex, which compounded into some other things, and and we'll get all through that. But I'm just a big advocate of having a deep bench when it comes to your finances, um, and and I think that everybody uh, should have their own strategy. And so for me, like I'm very grateful for my W two. I like it. I have flexibility. I'm with a good company. That being said, I want to get to where I'm at my W two just because I want to be there, uh, not because I have to rely on the income coming in from it. Um, I'm not quite there yet. Um, I think that I'm maybe a couple of years out, but that's just what I've learned as I've gone is, is there's this nice, um, there's, there's this nice spectrum of kind of figuring out what you want and all these different types of real estate investing that you can use and switch your strategy to get to. And so that's why it's a unique time to talk to me is, uh, you know, I spent the first portion of my career of investing, buying up duplexes, triplexes, value add stuff. And now I'm very heavy into the short term rental side. And uh, then I have goals for once I've reached uh, what I think will be my goal with that. So what is your short term to long term ratio right now? What is tell us about that portfolio mix? Okay, so I have 11 doors of long term rentals. About half of that are in 50% partnerships. I've got four duplexes, three of which I own by myself, and then I have a triplex. 
All of them are value add. Uh, so I kind of did what I call a reverse burr strategy, and we can talk about financing later. Um, but I, I kind of just bought one with pretty normal terms, 20% down. You know, not a stellar deal by any means, but it kind of taught me the game. And by the time I did the third one, it was a three duplex portfolio acquisition that I did by myself with creative financing, probably the most complicated thing I've ever done in real estate. But as soon as I got that one done is when I realized like, you know what, for me to reach my goals, I'd need like a hundred of these and I don't want a hundred of these. And it's a lot of work to find and add value to these properties. And a short-term rental fell in my lap last April uh, or March of 2020, right when COVID was hitting and I immediately fell in love with it. So now I have five short-term rentals and then, you know, the five or six uh, long-term properties and I have a six short-term rental under contract. And that's where I'm putting all of my focus for growth right now. I, I'm not shopping duplexes or anything like that. So, so it's about half and half, but a hundred percent of my time is spent on the short-term side because I use professional property management for the long-term stuff. Same here, same here. And we I, we have a lot of interesting ground to cover with the financing side. So before we get to that in just a second, how do you how do you identify a market, whether it's long term or short term? What makes you decide, OK, yes, this is the market that I want to go into and build a portfolio in? So I'm very much a partnership person. Uh, I love leveraging other people's strengths. I know what I'm good at. I know what I suck at. Uh, so I fell into the San Antonio market for the long-term side just because I found a rock star team here. I ended up through bigger pockets stumbling on my realtor who is just brilliant. He knows how to underwrite properties. That's all he does uh, is small multi-unit stuff. And um, he is business partners with the property manager. They, they, uh, the property manager also owns the brokerage he's under. And then they are also essentially business partners with the guy doing the rehabs. So the whole reason I'm in San Antonio is I found these three people that are all connected to each other. Um, and so that way, when my agent would bring me something and he'd have all these numbers, I would be able to take them to the contractor and the, and the property manager and they would vet those. And if one of them screwing up, I call the other one to complain. And so it's been really nice. So the whole reason I was in San Antonio was all about leveraging the right people. Um, it, it is not necessarily the best market for long-term rental right now. It's gotten to where it's really difficult to find deals, honestly. And then for short-term rental, I live in New Braunfels, which it's a seasonal vacation place, but it's a great vacation destination. And there are affordable or there were, it's getting more and more scarce, but there were affordable condos here. And uh, I have a good friend and neighbor who is a realtor as well. And she was buying one. And she said that she had a friend who shared her numbers from Airbnb. And I just said, hey, can I look at those? And I looked at the numbers and then I called her back and I said, and these are real numbers. And then I called a couple of other people that I knew that understood the business. And I was like, well, shoot, if I'm willing to just take the risk of trying to manage this myself and making sure I don't screw it up, the returns are much higher and these properties are way cooler. So I bought one. Like I said, it was right in the middle of COVID. And basically what happened was um, I went down this rabbit hole of like, well, I, I could do these anywhere. If, if I'm going to do more of these, where is the best place in the U.S. to do it? Um, because that was something I didn't really feel like I needed a team other than, you know, making sure I find a good maintenance staff, cleaning people. But it's just like, where can I where is the best place to find a property? And that's actually how I found short term shop. Um, I remember I was thumbing through podcasts while my son was doing his swimming lessons so I could just watch him swim and listen to something. And I stumbled on an interview with you and I don't even remember where it was, but you were talking about returns in the Smokies and I was just mind blown. Um, so I think that I talked to you, you guys were probably already really busy, but it was, 
it was not like the volume you're getting in now for buyer leads, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, I, I got paired up with Derek, with you guys, and uh, we, we got two properties bought, I mean, pretty quickly after that. And hopefully we'll do more. But uh, basically, I, I pick a market based off of, you know, A, the numbers and the accessibility and my just my gut, my confidence in it. And uh, that's why, like right now, my next one will be in Port Aransas, which is uh, pr- the best beach area here in Texas. Like I, I ran some reports off of Price Labs. You can use that or AirDNA. And I'm just very confident that if I can find a property that's this size within this price that looks like it's nice enough to be in that 75th percentile, um, then you can conservatively run numbers. And for me, if, if I run all these numbers conservatively, I like the property, I like the market, and my numbers are well over a 20% estimated cash on cash return, then uh, I, I move forward. So that's kind of my strategy. Awesome. Very thorough. I love that. I love that level of detail. So thank you for for sharing with everyone. Now let's get to the really interesting part. So you mentioned a reverse burr. I think pretty much everybody listening probably knows what a regular burr is, but what in the world is a reverse burr? So I found out about this loan product from a buddy of mine who is flipping houses or was flipping houses. And so with a burr, you're going to, you know, typically borrow money to go buy something cash and borrow the money to improve it. You take it back to the bank, get it reassessed. And so you're either into it for very little or nothing. So what I did was instead of having to do the refi, I did this on the front end. And you could do this for a short term rental, but this was for a three duplex portfolio. And what's cool about this is I had bought half of a duplex a year before. And I'm after doing the rehab and 25% down and all that, I was into it for like $40,000 cash. And that's a lot of money for most people. And then I found a little bit better of a deal and did another conventional loan. And I was into that one for 35,000 cash. And keep in mind, these are both 50% partnerships. I learned about this loan product from my buddy who's flipping. And so I went and talked to the banker who we both know, he's from my hometown. And I said, hey, could I use what my friend is using for buy and hold? And I just kind of explained what I was doing. And he said, sure. And I had underwritten this three duplex portfolio. And for me to do it under how I was operating, it needed like $200,000 in cash. So it was out of the question. I let it go. Plus, I was going to have three closing costs to do that. So I had like $18,000 in closing costs. So I ran the numbers based on this new loan product. And so basically how it works is I said, okay, um, I went to the banker. I said, I'm, I'm getting these duplexes for on average $145 a piece, $145,000 a piece. It's going to cost $10,000 per unit. So $60,000 to fix them up, but they're going to be worth $585,000, $585, So I, I don't remember the math off the top of my head. I was creating about $60,000 or so in equity, I remember at the time. And so all the banker did was say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an appraiser Um, go out there and confirm that if you do everything on this punch list, that it will be worth what you're saying it's worth. So we had an appraiser go out there. He looked at our contractor bid spec and he said, yep, if you're going to do all this stuff, these will each be worth 185. So what happened was the bank loaned me 80% of that future value up front. So for me to buy these three duplexes myself, I wrote a check for $11,000, which was really cool. Like I said, that's kind of the most ninja thing I've done in real estate. I was really proud of that. And I could have used private money to do the rehabs. But since the leases were ending gradually, just as people would come out, I was spending the 10 grand rehabbing them and I bought those December 31st of 2019 and the bank has them valued at 
uh, 185 a piece. I could currently sell each of them for about 220 a piece. So there's there's nice equity sitting in there. You have to be careful when you use that loan product because you're borrowing the maximum amount. So your cash flow can get a little sticky. That that's where it's give and take. If you minimize um, that money in so that you can maximize what you borrow, your cash flow gets thin. But that portfolio still cash flows. Um, almost 200 bucks a door. Uh, I make like 1100 bucks and that's even after setting aside for repairs and maintenance, paying property management. Um, so that's by far like the most complicated thing I've done. And I'll probably go back to doing some more things like that on a bigger scale once I have enough short-term rentals that, that are just coming in with a nice consistent income that I like. That's awesome. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around it a little bit. So let's break this down a little bit further. Okay. Not only myself, but other people uh, who are listening. On so basically, instead of lending you what the house is worth now, and you having to put all your cash in it to rehab it and then financing out, they just lent you the total value, future value up front, and you were able to use some of that money to do the rehabs. Is that my understanding? Yeah, because I, I was creating sixty thousand in equity out of thin air. So if you look at it as, well, I'm getting that credited at the closing table, because if you just look at it as if those things had already been fixed up and I was buying them for, uh, I think my total loan was 549. If I was buying them for 80% of 549, then I mean, uh, that'd be the loan. So 20% of that would be the down payment. And so if you took 20% of that, I think it was, um, here, I'll just do it on my phone. What's 20%. Of 549. So if, if you had just gone and fixed them up yourself and then like, and then they had sold them to me at that, that's like $109,000. But I was creating, I guess I was creating about um, 85 or 90,000. Like it worked out where my down payment because of the amount of equity I was creating was uh, $11,000 at closing. And so because you were showing all of this forced appreciation, so obviously there has to be a deal. It has to work the same thing as a burr, where if you buy it for like a hundred and put 20 into it, you're into it for 120, but now it's worth, you know, 155. It kind of has to meet that criteria where you're where you're creating a lot of equity. Um, but if you're able to show that on the front end, uh, and you know, not all banks will do it, obviously, but you know, and, and all my bank did was you know, we, we sent them pictures as we were going, I sent them invoices and we would send them copies of the new leases as we were going and they just let us alone. That's awesome. And I assume that this was done through a small local bank because yeah, yeah, they, they really are. Once you lose or not lose, once you use up all of your conventional loans, which I'm a big proponent of use up all those conventional loans before you go commercial, just because the interest rates less, it's a 30 year fixed, but uh, it's, we on our most recent one. So we just got from a local, uh, not a credit union, just a local bank gave us like a $750,000 cash line of credit. Cause we just said, Hey, here's what we've done in other markets. This is for our long terms, not our short terms, by the way, mm -hmm. here's what we've done. This is what it looks like. This is the market that we're doing it in now in this bank's market. What can you do? And they just said here, here's 750,000 go knock yourself out, which ends up being like about a million in, um, buying power. And then once, you know, in six months, we'll reevaluate if we're going to give you more or not. And we're like, wow, a conventional bank or like a big bank that does commercial would never, ever 
even look at something like this. Uh, we actually got told no a couple of times on, because these are small like duplexes, 100,000, 150,000. So it's not something that a lot of the big institutions really want to mess with right now because they're like, oh, you know, things are kind of weird uh, with the, the eviction moratoriums. We don't really want to do a bunch of single families right now. But the local bank was like, yeah, here, here you go run away, make, you know, make us some money. And that was it. So I'm, I think that's really cool. Did you, how long did it take you to find a bank that would do something cool like that? Um, well, so I did those first two through a mortgage broker and that's when, you know, I had sat down with my friend that flips houses and I was like, I go, what all are you doing? Like, I didn't even know what to ask. I was like, are, you know, are you using hard money, private money? And he was like, well, I'm using this bank, which is where we both grew up in San Angelo, Texas. And he was like, here's what I'm doing. And so it actually, I, I just, I talk to people all the time. I'm a big networker. And so a lot of times uh, it's just kind of lucky like that fell in my lap. I didn't have to shop very far. And since then, I've done a few commercial uh, refinances from some of my first duplexes with a different local bank here where it's just, you know, they've appreciated. I didn't have to come out of pocket. I could move them into an LLC. Um, and I just, you know, I just did that just because because I had partners and we did wonky things like this one's in my name, but on paper, you own half of it. Um, but I, I didn't have to look around too far. But that is what I tell people, like a lot of people that haven't invested yet, they'll text me a question like, should I get an LLC? And I'm usually kind of rude to him. I just respond, well, what does it look like when you're underwriting properties with an LLC? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, that answers your question. It's a totally different loan product, um, totally different uh, interest rate. They have resets on them. That being said, the, the other side of that coin is that people will say things like, well, commercial, the interest rates are high. And it's, and it's the same thing, like another caveat when people don't want to shop short-term rentals or something that has an HOA, it's like, none of that matters. If, if, as long as you're comfortable with whatever the down payment is, whatever the cash flow is, and whatever your cash on cash return is, it doesn't matter if it's 10% interest and you have a thousand dollar a month HOA do like, I don't, I don't care about any of that. So when I look at a property, I, I underwrite it with like three or four different loan products. You know, I, I start by looking at what's the revenue going to be, what are my expenses going to be, and then I just I'm able to just drag it across like four different loan products, and you have this little buffet of returns and cash flows. And it's also going to depend on if you're partnering. If you're not, if I were partnering with someone on a professional level, I would feel uncomfortable saying, "Hey, you go get this in a vacation home loan, and it's going to be in your name, but I'm going to own half of it." And here, you know, here's how we're going to do it. Like, I'd probably want to do that in either a 20% conventional loan or even better an LLC if the numbers pencil out. So I guess the, <laughs> the, the short answer to that is like, I, I just tell people, talk to local banks and at least understand three or four basic loan products for conventional and for LLC, and that'll help you make your decision. Great advice. I 100% agree with that. A lot of people also want to just go straight from zero to like 100 LLCs, and you don't have to do that mm -mm. either. So. Of course, I'm not giving any sort of legal advice. I'm just saying, uh, <laughs> do your research. Um, so you've talked a little bit about or touched on partnerships. So when you structure a partnership with someone, whether it's a long-term or a short-term, what does that process look like? Um, they started organically. Like I, I have two buddies that we, before I got into real estate, we did a, we owned a lawn care franchise for three years and it was just, it was three of us that kind of had, um, different skill sets and, and we all wanted to build something on the side. And so 
that taught me a lot about partnerships just because, you know, it taught me what to look for in future partnerships. Luckily, that one was great. Like we just kind of went into it. Um, we were naive and, and it worked out great. We exited that business. Uh, no bumps and bruises didn't make a whole lot of money, but it, it kind of showed me as I was going on um, down the road, like, you know, it has to be it has to be somebody that complements your skill set or they have something you don't need. Like, you know, I, sometimes on some of these deals, it's just been like, I've found the deal, but I don't want to put up all the money. And I know that this friend or, or this person that I've worked with in the past, like that they would be really easy to work with. And, and I usually like to kind of control the terms of it because I'm usually the one finding and putting these deals together. And so if I can go to them and say, hey, are you comfortable writing this much of a check? Here's what I see the numbers being. Um, and then if it's somebody that's like a close friend, that's when I've done stuff where it's like, we'll, we'll just do a conventional loan in my name for this one and you can get the next one and then we'll move them out later. And luckily I have a CPA and a bookkeeper and a real estate attorney so we can keep all that intact. Uh, but where I really got serious about shopping partners and, and I know you wanted to touch on this, I don't know if now's a good time to segue to it, but how I'm funding these deals. My W-2 kind of pays our bills, goes into the retirement accounts, provides benefits. It's great. Um, but how I'm actually coming up with down payment money is I buy and sell raw land. I send out about 4,000 or so letters a month to counties to buy raw land. And and this is, it's it's almost like the short-term rental ownership phenomenon. Like if you get on the internet, you don't have to look far. There's a lot of people doing it. A lot of people putting on classes for it. There's tons of different places. And um, I met someone else doing it and I was like, this seems super easy. So I did that by myself and I failed miserably. My first deal, I bought three lots from a developer and I overlooked the fact that they had gas lines running through them, drainage ditches, like stuff that any anybody would catch. And so I realized like, I'm not good at underwriting land. There's more of an art to it. I can underwrite something that has a cash flow uh, attached to it and things like that, but I suck at land. So it took me a year and a half to get rid of those properties. I lost probably like $8,000 when it was all said and done, but it made me realize like, okay, well, I need... I need someone who's really analytical that can analyze these properties. And so that's when I partnered up with the uh, second partner on the land deal. He's an oil and gas engineer. He's also a licensed realtor. So he just kind of, he's kind of my numbers guy. And, and, and we brought on a mutual friend of ours. That's kind of our Swiss army knife. He's really good on the phones. He's the one that negotiates. He's very like warm to converse with. And that way, I am able, I tried to set it up where I can not be bothered during business hours. I set up the marketing campaigns. I do all the systems, the vision and all of that stuff. So for partnerships, it's all about, you know, making sure that you're, that either one person controls the deal uh, of whatever you're doing or that you're on the same page for possible exit strategies and you have that outlined, but more importantly, that you complement each other. I have, I have a few best friends that are just like me personality wise and like, there's just not a whole lot of business opportunity for us because we both suck at the same stuff. So we're probably going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So yeah, I've, I have seen a few things here and there. I've like started to hear the word land flipping a little bit more. And I have actually personally bought a property that did have a gas line going across the backyard. So uh, it was a primary home. It was the first home that I ever bought. It wasn't an issue, but you're not alone in that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but uh, that being said, so what exactly is land flipping? So if you're sending these letters and you're buying this land, what is the value out on the back end for you to then make money? 
there's a ton of different ways to do it. Like I would say majority of the people are mailing in areas like New Mexico and Arizona, like desert rural stuff. And so they're trying to find stuff that they can buy for $2,000 and then owner finance it out for 10 and stuff like that. And that's not really what we do. We, we stick to three or four markets within Texas that we just know really well. And uh, we mail... Our, our sweet spot is probably stuff that's uh, that builders buy. So under an acre, that's where we do most of our stuff. But we've done a handful of five, six, seven, ten acre tracks as well. And we're just looking for we're, we're sending out very honest letters that basically say, hey, we, we live in this area. We work in this area. We know it. We're not just sending out lowball offers. And and so we, we try to physically look at every property, which is something that most people, the, the whole land community basically advertises that like you don't need to go look at it. We, we kind of do it differently. We try to put eyes on everything we can. Um, but we're looking for stuff where like we have a few sweet spots in this area where it's appreciated so fast that... Um, that, and we know the market so well that we can send mail out and, and we might find a lot that somebody bought, you know, 10 years ago or they've had it for a long time and they're into it for like nothing to $6,000. And we're able to give them, you know, $20,000 for it, but sell it for forty five. dollars um, and it's not it's not necessarily an easy business. You have to I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. You have to keep the mail going. You have to be constantly analyzing the properties, constantly getting offers out, writing them up quickly. And you have to have a buyer's list. And so that's why we have three of us and a full time virtual coordinator because we all have W-2s. Um, but basically we're trying to send out enough mail to find people where, you know, a lot, like we do a lot of them where somebody's like, you know what, I have a ton of money already. We're buying some right now where this guy just has a bunch of money. He doesn't want to mess with them. Two of them are partially in a floodplain, so he can't do much with them. But he was like, you know what, if you'll buy these two at tax appraised value, I'll just give you these other two because the County has them taxed too high and I'm tired of paying it. And, and like, we know that we can actually do, we actually might try to build an Airbnb on one of those cause it's overlooking a lake. Um, and so we get a lot of those or like somebody that owns eight acres. That's like, you know what? I've been divorced twice. I got all these kids. Like if I list this, they're going to tear me limb from limb. Like if you'll give me tax appraised value, I'll take it. And so we'll underwrite it and say like, yeah, I think we can make a good chunk here. Um, so that's kind of how we do it. We have actually, most people in the land business don't do any sort of improvement. We have on a handful of them, like we'll take a skid steer, a dozer in there and clean it up a little bit, uh, trim the trees on some of the bigger parcels, but it really just all comes down to picking a good County where you see the right trends, where there's stuff trading hands and it's not sitting on the market too long. And if you can go in there and know the market well enough where you can find value, then it's kind of a numbers game, but it is a lot of work. We did, we did we got really serious about it in about June of last year. And we did 17 properties between June and December. And I mean, we have, I don't know, nine properties in and out of escrow, like right now. Um, and we just turned the mail back on in March when we hired a new guy, we took a break for a while cause we were all overwhelmed. Um, so it's, you know, I, I do like the idea. If you're not a super high income W2 person, I like the idea of setting up a side hustle and having something where it's like, you know what, all this money is going to my, investing side. And that's kind of what I did. I had a higher income W2 in my twenties, but I was working all the time. My phone was always on. It was oil and gas. And after the second downturn in it, I got laid off and I was like, you know what, I'm going to take a pay cut and go work on the manufacturing side because it's just way less stressful. But the trade-off was I wasn't making a whole bunch of extra money to go buy rent houses. So that's kind of why I decided to do something like land. That's really fascinating. And that was a very, very <laughs> thorough answer to, 
to which I do not have a follow-up question, but there's one <laughs> more thing that I really wanted to touch on uh, yeah. before we go with you about, because you do like your W2, for, it sounds like, and you are scaling this pretty, I would say a pretty large and pretty fast real mm-hmm. estate portfolio. Uh, you've got some, got to have some systems in place to where you have your day job, but you're able to manage these properties and you're able to manage the direct mail and the phone calls you're probably getting from that land flipping business. So what do your systems look like to keep you from being just completely overwhelmed at all times? Yeah, this is a good time to chat about that because um, I'm still figuring out as I go. Uh, like you said, I went from one to six short-term rentals in like 14 months. Um, so that one, it, it's not that it's uh, a ton of work, but it's just, there's just always something that comes up. Like I had a guy message me at 1030 last night cause he couldn't find the parking spot and I didn't see it. I was asleep, but it's like, you know, I don't know how I could have made that any clearer. Um, and so when stuff like that comes up during the day and, and I'm focusing on my W2, it's not even so much about focusing on my W2. I'm looking at everything now as how much time am I spending on stuff that's not actively like getting me towards my goals and me answering messages from a guest or talking to a land buyer or seller like that. That's not really servicing my purpose. Um, so it kind of all started like just by outgrowing phases. Once I got three short-term rentals, I was like, you know what? I want a bookkeeper. I suck at like I was using QuickBooks and I was putting things in buckets, but it doesn't mean that it's right for taxes. Um, so the first thing I did was hire a bookkeeper. I already had a CPA. And after like a month of a bookkeeper, I was like, holy crap, that's the best you know money I could have ever spent. And then when we turned on this land business, we looked at how much it would cost to have a virtual coordinator. And uh, we looked at it and we were like, shoot, like we're crazy. We, we need to do that. And so, so my whole job with the land business and then the same thing, you know, managing my short-term rental business is I am the one that's looking at figuring out what systems we can use. And so within short-term rentals, it's pretty much, you know, we use your porter for operating. We use price labs for pricing. Um, and then with my virtual coordinator and my bookkeeper, we have a combination of Google drive. We use bill.com to pay our bills, uh, when we can, if not, we use PayPal. Um, Google drive is really nice cause you can have all the shared stuff, shared reporting, and then we're using Slack and Trello. And these are the newer ones we've done. So Slack is basically just a glorified way for us to communicate because my, I've just read a lot of stuff. That's basically like, you know, if you're conducting a lot of your, um, tedious business tasks through text and email, like it's just not sustainable. And that's what we learned when we'd have like all these land leads going on. Our group text was so confusing. And so that's why we set up Slack. We've got like an inbound deal flow channel, outbound deal flow channel. And then my virtual coordinator, he also helps me with the short-term rental. So we have our own little channel for that. And then I have like a receipts channel so I can just text stuff in there and he loads it in for the bookkeeper. Uh, Trello is uh, Trello's really cool too. It's just like Monday or Asana. Um, but it's it's very simple. And so that is how we handle deal flow for land. So as soon as we get something under contract and we're building it out right now, he can just you know drop the address and the closing date in there and it will set forth a whole bunch of tasks to make sure title has our LLC docs that I get earnest money paid, that we're following up two days before close, that we're still on schedule for me to check the bank account to see if we have to use the line of credit or if we have money. Um, and then I'm doing it for the short-term rentals too. I've got a whole checklist for onboarding a unit. And then I just have a wish list of all my existing properties. Like, Hey, these are just little things I want on my radar, like standardizing to Roku TVs, um, or making sure I have a Keurig in each one, um, little things like that. So uh, everything right now that I'm doing is not 
so much on uh, trying to scale as fast as I can, but I just look at, okay, if I were double the size, you know, if, if on the land side, we had 20 deals in escrow at all times, does this system we're currently doing work or, or is it stupid? And then same thing with the short-term rentals. I, I, I just say, if I had 12 of these is what I'm doing, you know, what do I need to implement to make sure this works with 12? And so that's just kind of how I look at everything. And and what led me to that was we ramped up the land business and I bought two short-term rentals at the same time and was onboarding them in April. And uh, I was completely in the weeds. I was exhausted. Um, it, it like I felt like I wasn't being a good dad, a good husband. Um, I wasn't exercising and I was, uh, you know, trying to keep the lug nuts on my W2 at the same time. And I was just like, you know, this is stupid. So I, I kind of took a step back and everything right now is all about processes so that I'm so that I'm set up where when I buy a property, I just drop it in the system and it's rolling, not where I'm just chasing my tail for 40 days trying to get it set up. That's awesome. That's actually the exact tech <laughs> that we use is uh, Slack and Trello, whether it's oh, cool. Yeah, whether it's for our investing and expanding our portfolio and managing the current portfolio side or the short-term shop sales side, or even just our household has a Slack and a Trello because we have some VAs that like really, really make our lives go round. They're actually sitting in on this call, but like we could not live without them. They order our groceries. They make sure that we get, you know, we make doctor's appointments and everything. So it's really like those two things can make your life so much easier both on the business side and your personal life, just in terms of having a system for everything and just, you know, making sure that you're paying attention to things and that, and that the system's working is really. Yeah. And it's hard because like, if you're not at, you know, if you're not at the right size and you try to force it, I tried to force a sauna last year with the land business and it flopped. Like we just weren't ready for it. Um, but once you are like, and, and the biggest one that I was scared of was bringing on the, the virtual coordinator. Cause I was like, you know, we don't have a manual built out for this guy. Like it's going to be, he's going to be drinking from a fire hose and then we're all at work during the day. Like I was like, I'm worried I'm going to screw this up. And he's going to be like, you guys are jokes and he's going to leave. Um, and, and we fumbled through that first week, but he had plenty to learn and uh, he's helping me build out the manual so he can move up with us. And the goal is for him to not stay on the short-term rental side forever, but to help me build out a manual to bring in someone for that. And he'll be on land. But that's the, that is the biggest level up I've done is bringing on a full-time virtual coordinator. It has been an absolute game changer. He's a rock star. Um, like I know that's going to be the model going forward. I'm going to continue to bring on um, VAs or, you know, other people to help virtually. Cause that's been the amount of like, I can't believe how busy he is. And, and I look at everything he's doing and I'm like, I was doing most of that. So that's just so crazy. None of that was making me money. Um, so that's been the biggest game changer is when you get to that right size, like just take the leap and get some help and definitely spend the time building out systems. I mean, you're spending a lot of time up front and it sucks and you're just, you know, you're like, this, this seems like a waste of time. But once you slowly tweak it and get it operational, um, it's just it's just so much better. Oh, yeah, I 1000% agree. <laughs> well, it's coming to the last three questions of the episode. So I will go ahead and ask the first one. What advice would you give 20 year old Scriven knowing now what you wish you would have known that knowing then what you know now, what would you tell him? Well, so what's cool about this question is I go every year to my college. I was involved in American Marketing Association um, at Texas State where I went to school. And I, and I go pretty much every year and I speak to the students. And typically they have people in from big companies that talk marketing. And I'm kind of this random session that comes in and I talk about transitioning into the real world. And then I talk about personal finance and stuff. So I actually get to have this conversation with other 20-year-olds. And what I would tell myself is... 
hey, it's it's good to um, to go after a job that you really want, right? If it's important to you to work at a place that has beanbags and a kombucha keg, great. If you want to be, um, you know, if you want to have a doctorate in marketing and be a professor, great. If you want to work in oil and gas, cool. But um, you know, the advice for 20 year olds is to read things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, Set for Life by Scott Trench, because whenever before you have kids and you're settled down and you can learn to live below your means, you're so uh, flexible and getting that stuff started early, because once you do start investing, you talk to people that have three or four properties or whatever, and it, you can't explain the way that it compounds for you um, and the way that your brain changes when you start doing these things until you do it. So if I were to go back and sit down with myself, it would just be all about, you know, um, I, I didn't have a, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So it would have been all about like, find, find that job that makes as much money as possible that you're qualified for while it's still something that you can enjoy doing and uh, buy a house as fast as you can to rent out the rooms. I did that when I was 22, just by accident, bought my first house and I had buddies that were roommates. Um, and then I, I tell these 20 year olds and then you do it again every two or three years until you're 30 or until like you get married and settle down and your spouse tells you to stop it. Uh, but if you do that, the amount that it will change your brain where you can leapfrog into these other things and the amount of stability that it gives you. And, and it just sets you up for uh, not relying. Like it's cool to have a W-2 and like your W-2, but I personally think it's irresponsible to rely on one source of income. So if you can just plant that seed right when people are getting started, where it becomes habit, those people are totally different. Even when they're, you know, early thirties, like I am, and I didn't get started until I was 27 on like truly investing. Um, they're just going to be exponentially different than the people that rely on one source of income 90% of the time. I totally agree with that too. Uh, so <laughs> this is kind of the same question. You kind of sort of already answered it, but what advice would you give somebody who is looking to get started? Not necessarily a 20 year old, but anyone who is looking to get started in real estate investing now, the way the market yep. is currently. <laughs> Yeah. And, and no, I have a totally different answer for this because it's typically, it's not always 20 year olds that I'm talking to about this, but I tell them to do a true audit of their situation. Um, you know, are you at a W2 or a job or do you own a business that you love where you make high income, you're putting a lot of way in savings, maybe you have stock options. Um, and, 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 you know, that's different than somebody that's like, yeah, I make okay money. I'm not saving a lot. Um, so kind of find out where you are on that spectrum of like, how happy are you at your job? How much time do you have to spend there? How much money are you making? And that's going to help decide what your path is. Like, like I have a really good friend who makes great money and he's basically a director of a chain of restaurants. He would not be able to do short-term rentals. He's not able to spend that much time on his phone, but he makes a ton of money. So he's somebody that it's like, dude, go buy a duplex every six, eight months or whatever. And you'll be able to retire 10 years early, worst case scenario. Right? So I tell people to, I like to talk through that with people so that they can identify a real strategy. And then step two, to avoid that analysis paralysis, figure out exactly what wheelhouse you're comfortable playing in. Like me, myself, I read all these books. I got all fired up. And then I read things like the ABCs of real estate, crushing it in multifamily. And they were all great. I learned a lot from them. But at the end of the day, I spent all this time analyzing these $3 million apartment complexes. And for whatever reason, it wasn't registering that like I had no intention of actually buying any of those. So figure out what's really in your wheelhouse. Um, and, you know, and that way you can say, okay, 
if, if a deal fell in my lap today, how, how big of a check am I really comfortable writing? Do I need a partner or do I not need a partner? And, and that way you can narrow it down to say, you know, look, this is what is actually in my wheelhouse and it will literally probably shave two years off of you getting started. Because I talk to so many people that have not gotten started or they get started two years later and finally end up with a rent house or a duplex. And there are those, you know, you know, 5% of people that are just really smart and they're able to swing buying a 14 unit or whatever with their first uh, deal. But it's all about just having those conversations of what's my situation, what's my goal, and then what what could I really execute if I had to do it within 90 days? And that's what changed it for me. That, that same guy that was flipping houses um, and showed me the loan product, he's three years younger than I am. And he had done a bunch of stuff. And he finally was like, dude, you just, you need to stop talking about it and put down the books for a while. And we kind of had that conversation. He was like, how much money do you have? He was like, go buy a duplex. And that's what led to me going to bigger pockets, finding my team. I had a duplex in like 60 days. That's awesome. Awesome. Great advice. There's really no better way to learn how to do something than just to go do it. Yeah. And very last question of the podcast, what is your favorite book or just a book that has really impacted your mindset? So this has evolved for me over time. It started with Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like everyone else. Um, I would say the most like profound, impactful book that changed my mindset, though, was The 4-Hour Workweek. Um, it got me to stop... Um, wearing the hours that I worked like a badge of honor. Like, honestly, if you work 70 hours a week, like it kind of, you know, taught me to be sickened with that and be like, you know, what do you need to change up? Um, that book is great just for mindset and kind of little hacks on how to do things. Um, blocking out your time for certain things. So that one's really good. And, and now I actually don't do a whole lot of like, like, whenever I listen to bigger pockets, I listen to like their mindset ones that come out on Sunday. Like I've kind of taken a break from studying real estate all the time. And so for me, it's all about like optimizing myself. So I'm really into like habit books, like atomic habits. Um, you know, I'm, I'm listening to, uh, books like um, Think and Grow Rich or Becoming Supernatural. And I'll listen to bits and pieces um, or, you know, things like traction. So it's more about like just maximizing my potential is what I'm into now. But um, I would say like for the those time periods, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is great if you're getting started, set for life if you're younger. And uh, four hour work week, even though it's old, like it's it's crazy, the mindset shift it'll give you, I think. Love four hour work week. Yeah. I read that when I had a W-2 still. I think it might have even been before I got my real estate license. And it definitely was a, a game changer for me, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. I still use. So he has a note card method that he talks about in there. And I still use it most days um, before I go to bed at night. Um, and basically, the, the strategy is you write down your high impact things that are going to move the needle on your note card. You don't write down. Like, you can still have a to do list, a little checklist if you have a bunch of things to do. Um, but inevitably, you'll notice if you have a big, long checklist, all the crap that's really easy that feels like you're getting things done or what you'll do. And then you'll have those same four or five bullets on your note on your to do list every day. So those are the only items that you want on the uh, note card. And you do those items first. And, and that way you, you write down things like I'm not going to check email till 930. I'm going to do this, this and this for my W2. And I'm not going to look at anything real estate until like my lunch break. And so that's that's the kind of stuff that I and the note cards important because you can carry it around in your pocket. And I screw up all the time like everybody else, but it's still uh, just something that stuck with me that helps a lot. Awesome. Well, Scriven, thank you so, so much for coming on. Uh, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, if you want to be gotten a hold of, mm -hmm. where can they find you? 
Um, so I am on Instagram. My handle is grassroots underscore wealth, uh, just because I'm still kind of a beginner at this. So I'm just sharing my journey on everything. Um, uh, you can go to us at haifsproperties.com. That's my email. So us at haifsproperties, H-O-E-F-S dot uh, com. And you can email me. Those are the two easiest ways. But I'm pretty responsive on Instagram. I'm not like super important on there. I, I have like, less than a thousand followers. So that's a pretty easy way. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on and we'll catch you later. Yeah. Thank you, Avery. Have a good one.